Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James, the letter of James. Uh, We are continuing our series called Faith Works, where we've been challenged by James that faith looks like something. It's not just words, but it's more than words. It looks like something in real life. We'll be in James chapter 3 today, which can be found on page 1012 in the Black Bibles that you'll see nearby. If you want to follow along with us uh, as we read, we'll read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James 3, 1 through 12, and we're calling it words. So last week, he hit really hard that faith is more than words. You can't just talk about it and not actually live it out. There has to be action. There has to be uh, some reality where the rubber meets the road and you're living out your faith. This week, he's going to swing to the other side and say, well, that's not to mean that words don't matter, right? The words that you speak do matter. Faith is more than just words, but that doesn't mean words are meaningless. Words have quite a power. And if you read the book of Proverbs, uh, as a matter of fact, this would be a great homework assignment this week just to scan through the book of Proverbs and just highlight everything that you find in the book of Proverbs about how we use our words. And you'll find uh, that all of us use our words badly. There are some of us uh, that are kind of the bold truth teller type. You're like, I just like to say it like it is, right? And you're kind of proud of yourself about that. So Proverbs has a lot to say to you about being gentle, about being loving and kind with your words. Then there's others of us, I'm kind of on this other side of the, the boat, where I'm always kind of trying to comfort people and encourage people. And Proverbs has a lot to say to people pleasers about not being a flatterer and speaking the truth, right? So someone who has a biblical balance with their words is both going to speak truth and also going to do it in love and usually we fall off the horse on one side or the other, right? Usually we, we mess that up. And James is, is as usual, going to hit us kind of hard with how we use our words. So let's look at chapter 3, James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Got some negative things to say here. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Hard words from James. Uh, let me pray and ask that the Lord would, would meet us here and help us. 
God, you, you promised us at the beginning of James that if we lack wisdom, we could, we could call on you, we could ask you, and that you're a generous father and you love to give. You love to help us. You love to show grace to us. So we ask you this morning that you would be here with us, that your spirit would meet us here, that you would help us to understand your words. And as we understand your word, that that would transform how we use our words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to an AP Ipsos poll that came out a few years ago, um, the use of profanity in American culture is on the rise. Does that surprise anybody? The use of profanity is on the rise. What, what that means is, let me translate, people use more bad words than they used to. How about that? Does that surprise you? People use more bad words than they used to. They did this survey, and in the survey, nearly 75% of people questioned said they encounter profanity in public either frequently or occasionally. Two-thirds said they think people swear more often than they did 20 years ago. Now, those are just the people in the survey that were talking about what they heard from other people. They surveyed more, and they found out that not only do we hear more bad words from other people, we say more bad words ourselves, right? They were honest enough to admit that in the survey as well. People are using more and more bad language. My question for us, is that what James is talking about? Is James talking about people having a potty mouth? Is that really the issue, right? Like, my brothers, you used bathroom language. This should not be. Is that what he's trying to say? I I think part of the problem is all of the four-letter words we use can kind of be broken into different categories, right? I mean, there's there's one category of using the Lord's name in vain. That's one kind of cussing. Uh, There's bathroom language. It's just vulgar, profane language. It's just kind of gross, you know? It's not necessarily sinful, but it's just kind of offensive. Um, There's another category of language, though, where we're cursing, right? Um, James is going to hit really hard, not on so much so saying uh, the word damn or hell, but what he's going to focus on is when we damn a person, right? When we curse a person, when we condemn a person. It's not so much about the four-letter word itself. It's not so much whether we spoke a word that was on some magic list. It's about how are we treating the people around us, and recognizing that words are powerful. So last week he said, don't think your words are so powerful that you can talk yourself into the kingdom. And now he's going to hit the other side of the extreme of, but don't belittle words so much that you think it doesn't matter what you say, right? The other side of it is we're just like, well, I just said what I was feeling. I'm just being honest, right? And we're tearing people apart. We're tearing people down. So He's hitting us hard again. James is always confrontational. And he starts off with a very concrete um, kind of almost spear point where he says, be careful, you shouldn't want to be a teacher. That's a dangerous position because teachers use their words a lot and our words are one of the biggest problems in our life. And so what I want you to know is he's not just talking to teachers. This pushes hard on me, I'm a teacher. Those of you that are public school teachers, those of you that are Sunday school teachers, those of you that teach in any other kind of setting. Yes, he's pushing hard against you, but he's starting with this concrete illustration and he's rolling it out to apply it to the entire church, to everybody, no matter what we do, we all have to be careful about our words. They get us into trouble. We can be flippant with our words. We can use words flippantly and not recognize the damage that they do to people. So what I want to say is all of us need to hear this and be thinking about how we use our words towards other people. 
I also want to address that I know that a lot of you have been hurt by other people's words. You're having a hard time getting over that. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm praying for you. I know that there have been things that have been said to you that were damaging, that were devastating. And your job will be doing the hard work of denying lies that have been spoken to you and renewing your mind with the truth of God's word and what God has to say to you. And that's really a completely different topic, but I just want to recognize that I know you're there and this might be stirring up bad memories of the kind of condemning words that have been spoken to you. The first thing that I want us to see as we move through the text is that words direct. Words are indeed very powerful. They are a controlling element. It's really shocking. It's surprising almost. James seems to be unfolding here this kind of logic that if you can get your words under control, then you can get everything else figured out in your life. So I want to unfold this, and I just want to kind of spoil the surprise because James leaves us hanging in a way that um, may be confusing for us. So I just want to set up that James is going to push us and leave us hanging, and then he's going to solve it later on. What we're doing is we're preaching through one big sermon, right? We could read the whole book of James in like 15 or 20 minutes, and it's one big sermon. And so he's going to leave us hanging with a problem here that he's going to answer more later on in chapter 4, that he's already answered some in chapter 1. So we just need to recognize that since we're breaking it into pieces, we need to address the answers that he's put other places in the book. So at, at first, he's going to set up this opportunity that we could direct and control our whole life if we could just get our words under control, right? So he started with the warning to teachers in verse 1, and then in verse 2, he says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So he's saying, okay, there's this theoretical possibility of being a perfect man, right? If you have good theology, you know that none of us are perfect. But James is kind of setting us up to knock us down. He says, then you would be a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He goes on in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. I have a picture here of a a bit and bridle on a horse. Any of you ever ridden horses before? Or one horse at a time, I guess, ridden a horse? Yeah? Um, If you ride a horse, it's really amazing. The horse is huge and strong, and it could just, like, crush you with one foot, right? They're very powerful, but you can direct them wherever you want them to go with the bit and the bridle, unless it's a trail horse that just will go in circles around the trail, right? But, I mean, most horses, you can direct them with this little bit. James is saying that's what our words are like. Our words, if we get them under control, can control this powerful beast that we are, right? It's like, if you can get the words under control, you could get the rest of your life under control. He's kind of holding out this possibility to us. He goes on in verse 4 and says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot, pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So he's saying the tongue is small, it's little, and it directs everything else, right? There's this possibility that we could get our life under control. Again, Proverbs really reinforces this as well. The book of Proverbs says that our words are incredibly powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, The words that you say are important. Don't think because you're not important or you feel insecure about yourself that the words you speak are not devastating. You can tear people 
to pieces. And often we do that the most with the people we love. Guard your tongue. Be careful what you say. James is reminding us to be careful with our words because our words direct lives. They change things. They are powerful. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, I want to distinguish this power that the biblical worldview puts into words. I want to distinguish it from some halfway Christian teachings out there, right? There's some things that are, that are kind of passed off as Christianity that are not Christianity. One of them is called the power of positive thinking. Have you ever heard of this before? Now, the power of positive thinking uh, can be helpful, right? You can go to your self-help section and you can learn things from the power of positive thinking type teachers because a lot of what they say is a reiteration of the truths that we find in Proverbs. Problem is it's an incomplete truth. It's kind of a half-truth. And so because of that, it makes it heretical. It doesn't stand up to the full Christian worldview, right? So power of positive thinking goes something like this. We're innately good as humans, and we just need to unlock our goodness with positive words, right? The problem with that is, yes, positive words can have a positive impact on our life, but we're not good. That, that's the problem with that teaching. We're not innately good. It's not like we're just this divine spark we have to fan into flame with positive confessions and saying good things and thinking good thoughts. Are words powerful? Yes. Read Proverbs. Words are very powerful. Positive words do have a positive impact, but it's not enough. It's kind of like saying this, hey, God's law is good, and if you would just keep God's law perfectly, you'd have a happy whole life. Well, yeah, but none of us can keep God's law perfectly, right? I mean, mean, it's true. Positive words have a positive impact, but we have a deeper problem. We have a spiritual sickness. We have a soul sickness that can only be cured by the gospel because ultimately we're sinners and we need what Jesus did for us. Jesus took our sins upon himself. By faith in Jesus, then we have union with his resurrection life. Not only did he take the payment and the penalty of our sins, but he gives us his resurrection life. And so we need something more than just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and thinking positive thoughts. Are they powerful? Yes. Is keeping all the Ten Commandments a good idea? Yes. Can we do it? No. We need Jesus to help us, right? We're not innately good. We're sinners. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, another variety of this is called the Word Faith Movement. Um, I don't mean any disrespect if you come from this background, but the Word of Faith Movement has some dangerous teachings in it. Uh, The Word of Faith Movement would teach something like this, very similar to the power of positive thinking, but it takes it kind of a few steps farther by incorporating more Christian terminology. Um, It would say that faith is a force unto itself. And it takes that logic that faith is a force unto itself, and it says then you can unlock that faith force with your positive words of confession. And so you may have known uh, people with a faith like this where they become very obsessed about saying positive things, and if they put Christian language with it, then it's like a magic wand and it has to happen. Uh, This gets taken to an extreme where positive words unlock the force of faith in such a way that God must obey what we confess. Have you ever heard this kind of thing before? So it's like, well, I'm tapping into faith and I'm making a positive confession, and so God has to do what I say. God has to obey. Problem again is this is not biblical. The Bible says that God is sovereign and God does what he will. God is in charge. Now we can boldly come into the throne room of God. He's our daddy, 
we can jump on his lap and we can ask him for great things. And sometimes he says yes and sometimes he says no. Because he loves us and he knows what we need better than we do. So we need to make sure we distinguish again from these kind of misfires of taking the concept that words are powerful and positive words make a positive impact and then they kind of get turned into a theology of their own. But we need to remember words are powerful. What we speak has a big impact. We have this incredible power over people's lives. So last week, James was emphasizing you can't just talk your way into heaven. You have to have a real faith. This week he's emphasizing, but don't forget your words do matter. The things that we say are incredibly powerful. They direct our lives. They direct other people's lives. As I said, James kind of sets us up as if we can actually get this all under control, right? He's kind of leaning us towards this thinking of, hey, all right, if I just get my tongue under control, if I just start speaking right words, then the rest of my life will all work out great. Again, the the problem is we're sinners and we can't do that. So what James does is he just keeps going more and more negative. So the next point is that our words injure. Our words injure. They're, They're dangerous. He gets more and more negative with how we use words. Uh, Raise your hands if you've ever heard this little children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. You heard that one? Almost everybody. Okay. At least half of you. I think the rest of you just don't like to raise your hand in church. Okay. So I was taught that a lot as a kid as a way to uh, protect myself against what other people might say. And I think that's fine. And it's, you know, well-meaning for your Sunday school teacher or your parents or whatever to teach you that. Problem is it's not true, right? I mean, it's not actually true. Because words do harm us. Words do harm us. Words are destructive. Words are devastating. Some of you are still trying to heal over words that people have spoken to you. And so James says in James 3, 5, So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Fire is destructive. Any of you ever been burned? It's painful. I mean, in real life, with real fire, it's painful. And being burned by real fire is a reminder of what it feels like to have devastating, destructive, condemning words spoken to us. It hurts, and it destroys the things that it touches. He says it's this great fire. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So he kind of started us off with, hey, if you get your words under control, everything's going to be cool in life. And now he's just like veered into this completely negative direction. Our, our tongue is set on fire by hell. The problem is deeper than we realized. We're, we're messed up. We don't use our words well. We don't love each other with the words that we speak. We don't edify. As Ephesians 4 says, we should build each other up with our words. That's not what we're doing. We're destroying each other. We're injuring each other. We're harming each other. So that's set on fire by hell. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, every kind of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So our mouths are set on fire by hell and our mouths are deadly poison, right? Again, he's, he's being pretty negative here. He says, Matter of fact, we've tamed every kind of beast and animal there is out there. Like you go to the circus, anybody gone to the circus before? You see people have tamed lions. If you see a lion out in your everyday life, you're probably not going to get close to it, but people can actually tame them. 
an elephant, right? You're going to probably be cautious if you're around an elephant. If you see one, you wander upon one in the jungle. Like you're out hiking at Dana Peak Park, you see an elephant, you're going to be like, whoa, be careful, right? But people can actually tame elephants. And he goes on, he says, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can do it. So he set us up before. Words are powerful. They have this incredible positive power. Proverbs talks about all this death and this life and this power that's in the tongue. And now he's saying, and no one can control it. No one can control it. We we can't do it. We're messed up. Galatians 5, Paul talks about how this gets lived out in uh, in the church. He says the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus made it pretty simple, right? He said we should love our neighbor as ourself. Paul says in Galatians 5, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Paul is talking about something that is peculiar to religious environments. So pay attention, we're in a religious place, okay? And in religious places, we often fall for this weird thinking that we can make ourselves more religious. And if we play the religious game, then we can impress God and impress other people. And we see other people that aren't playing the game as well as us. And we think there's a scoreboard and we start tearing them down. We say, well, they're not, they're not doing as well. And we start condemning and we start biting and we start devouring and we start tearing each other apart because we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand that the only reason we have any acceptance before God is not because we've played some religious game, but because Jesus died for us. And so when we don't understand that in our head and in our heart, we're going to just tear other people apart. We have to bite and devour other people if we're orphans and we're on our own, right? I mean, if, if God's left us and abandoned us and we have to earn our way to heaven, then we're going to have to kill a lot of people to get there, right? We're going to have to tear a lot of people down to make it to the top. But the gospel reverses that. The gospel says, yeah, you've been tearing each other apart, but, but God came down, he took on flesh, and he was torn apart for us. He took the penalty upon himself to bring us to God, to reconcile us to the Father. Watch out. If you keep biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. So the way he goes on in James is he says, no one can actually tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. In verse 9, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, stop. Stop. Stop tearing each other down. Why? He's not saying don't tear people down because they're all awesome. He's saying stop tearing people down because they're made in the image of God. Even if they fail, even if they sin, it's not our job to judge them. It's not our job to condemn them. It's not our job to tear each other to shreds. Does that mean we, we never rebuke one another or challenge each other if we're going astray? No, that's a whole other subject. He'll get to that later on in James. What he's talking about here is being condemning with each other, being judgmental. doesn't mean we never make judgments about right or wrong. It doesn't mean we never evaluate whether something is good or bad. He's just saying, as a habit, humans are destructive with their mouths. We tear each other apart. We tear each other apart. We tear each other down. It should not be. He's saying, stop it. 
And he's rooting, in it, rooting it in the fact that we're made in the image of God. So you can love anyone. You can love someone that's completely broken, that stabbed you in the back, that's betrayed you. You may not trust them, right? But you can still show grace to them because they're made in the image of God. Do you have to be careful with how you interact with certain people? Yes. Do you have to make judgment calls? Do you have to be discerning? Yes. But you can honor everyone unconditionally because they're made in the image of God. And that's what he's talking about. He says you can't praise God one minute and then condemn someone the next. It should not be. So if you're going to be that kind of person that's tearing each other apart with your mouths, I kind of feel like James is saying it'd be better to just not praise God. It'd be better to just leave. Stop pretending that you love God when you hate everybody else. It's been a theme in James, right? Stop the hypocrisy. Don't pretend that you love God when you hate everyone around you. If you understand the gospel, that you're a sinner too, and that God has forgiven you, then you're going to show love to those around you. I found a picture here when I was thinking about the biting and devouring one another from Paul's words of a Tasmanian devil. Any of you ever seen a Tasmanian devil? Some of you? Yeah, like out at Dana Peak Park or... Uh, they're pretty violent little animals, right? It's like kind of like a giant uh, rat with razor teeth, I think is kind of what a Tasmanian devil is like. And they live in Tasmania. And apparently some biological researchers were, were researching these uh, Tasmanian devils, and about 40% of the population of some of these devils in a certain area were just wiped out. It was like they were devastated by some sort of Tasmanian devil plague. And when they did more research, what they found out is that it was a mouth cancer that these devils were dying from. And what happens is, kind of like puppy dogs like to bite and chew, be playful, right? As you can imagine, Tasmanian devils like to bite each other a lot for fun. But one of them had this cancer in his mouth, and when they were biting and tearing at each other's mouths, they'd bite each other's mouths, and they would be passing uh, the cancer cells from mouth to mouth. And so this mouth cancer that started off in one Tasmanian devil spread. And it destroyed all the other Tasmanian devils. I use that as an illustration because, as I said before, I think what happens in, in human institutions and religious institutions is we don't understand the gospel. We think that we can achieve a righteousness of our own. And as we try to achieve a righteousness and a standing of our own, what we do is the way we get there is by tearing others down. And then we're infecting them with that same virus of non-gospel living. We're preaching. He said at the beginning, be careful. Uh, anyone that wants to be a teacher is going to come under a stricter judgment. Well, all of us as believers teach other people what Jesus is like. So if we take the name of Jesus, if we say I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, then immediately we're telling people who Jesus is by our lifestyle. And if we think we can get ahead in a group, in a church, in a club, in a team by tearing other people down, we're speaking anti-gospel truths. We're, we're false teachers then. We're speaking the opposite of who God is. We're not building up, but we're tearing down. We're condemning. These are the kind of things people say to us, right? You'll never amount to anything. You're such a loser. You're so stupid. You're so ugly. You're such an idiot. I mean, you don't, you don't have to use bad words to damn people. You can use simple little words, and you can curse people. He said, brothers, it ought not to be. We shouldn't curse each other because we're made in the image of God. 
The last thing I want us to understand is that words purify. We're going to have to, to get a full picture of this. We're going to have to go a little bit to the gospel of Matthew and Luke. We're going to have to go a little bit to other parts of James. But I think in the end, there is hope. I don't think James gives us a lot of hope here in chapter 3. But if we look at the rest of the book of James, chapter 1, chapter 4, we get some more hope. Um, words can purify. Look at verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Verse 11, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, right? Um, Salt water can't make fresh water. Fig tree can't make grapes. Grape tree can't make olives. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Saying the problem is the source. The problem is the source. So James brings us all the way to the problem is you. The problem is not just the words that come out of our mouth. The problem is our heart. Our heart produces the words. Jesus says it like this in uh, Luke chapter 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Because our words come from our heart. So if you're sinning with your words through condemnation, it's coming out of your heart. If you're sinning with your words by belittling, being sarcastic, or flattering, right? The passive way that we sin with our words. It's coming out of our hearts. He says it's a heart problem. We need a heart transformation. And again, James just leaves us hanging here. James says, you're messed up. You're messed up. End of chapter 3, moving on, right? That's where James leaves it. But again, it's one big sermon. There's there's more to James than just chapter 3. Later on, other people put the numbers of verses and the chapters in there. It's one book. And in this one book, later on in chapter 4, he says we should weep, mourn, and wail. We should repent. We should grieve that we are these kinds of sinners that tear people apart with our words. And earlier on in the book of James, he says we should humbly receive, we should meekly receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. The implanted word is Jesus, who is the word made flesh, right, in John chapter 1. More than that is the story of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. So this implanted word comes to us and in condemnation says, yes, you have sinned. Yes, you are broken. Yes, you're worse off than you even realized. But I love you so much that I'm willing to take your sin upon myself. I love you so much that I'm willing to take your sin upon myself. And that word flushes out the other junk within us. That word flushes out the the stuff that's in there. I have a picture here of a bucket that's being filled with water. If you have dirt in a bucket and you're outside, you can throw a water hose in the bucket and it's going to flush out the dirt. In John chapter 7, Jesus says that if you come to him for life, that springs of living water will flow from within you. He says in John chapter 7 that it's a promise of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. 
which is interesting because he's not quoting any particular prophecy from the Old Testament. What he's saying is the whole Old Testament promises this. The whole Old Testament promises that if you just come to me, if you realize how broken you are and you come to me and ask for help, springs of living water will flow from within you and it'll flush out all that other garbage. It'll drown it out. It's interesting that when we come to Christ, the image that we use is both a washing image and a drowning death image. Baptism is the old you dying. Not just sins being washed away, but the old you has to die and you have to be raised to new life. And he says that's, that's what we need as well. We're a spring, we're a well, but we're a poisonous well. Poison is coming out of us. And every time we condemn someone else, it's evidence that we need a new heart. Jesus says your heart is where these things come from. We need transformation. So and I, I think in the end, uh, James is leading us to repentance. It's not a feel-good message, I'm sorry. He's leading us to repentance. We all sin with our words. And when we sin with our words, we're showing the world that we don't understand who Jesus is. Remember, the New Testament tells us that even though we curse others, Jesus became a curse for us. We use our mouths to curse, but the word of God become flesh. Jesus Christ became that curse for us. He blesses us with his words. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship and in communion together. God, we thank you that although we deserve the curse that we speak over others, you took the curse upon yourself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the mind-blowing reality that the God of the universe would take on flesh, would be born as one of us, would suffer as one of us, would be betrayed as one of us, would be spoken ill and condemning words of, just as we have. We thank you that you're a high priest that can sympathize with us, that you know what it's like, yet you lived without sin. You did no wrong. You took our place. You became a curse for us, and you give us words of blessing. We thank you. We praise you for that, and we ask that you would transform us because of it. God, remake our words. Teach us how to speak blessing over others the way that you do to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.